Well, as I said, we're in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, and this is the second half of our two-part series on relating to unbelievers, uh, relating to unbelievers. And these, there's two pieces here that we talked about last week. There's a negative, and then there's a positive. If you look at verse 17, we see the negative side. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's the negative. It's the thing you ought not to do. And then we see the positive in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We should expect that structure because of verse 21, which is a summary statement. Look at verse 21. He says, do not be overcome by evil, which is essentially a summary of verse 17, but overcome evil with good, which is a summary of verse 18. So we have this idea sort of contained here. And then in verses 19 and 20, we have the reason for that, which is God's sovereign control over everything. And so Kevin's going to cover that next week. I'm going to be out of town, actually, uh, preaching at uh, Cross Life Bible Church, uh, their, their annual retreat. So Kevin's going to be covering for me, and he's going to cover verses 19 and 20. And so what we see is the negative, the positive, and Paul is describing all of this. And we talked last week about how that's really a summary of the second great commandment, right? The first great commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, Jesus says, is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And that's really just summarizing how we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we said last week, this deals primarily with unbelievers. And the reason for that is because of Paul's statement, all men. Twice he says, all men. And what's he, what he's saying is that everybody, and of course that includes the church as well, but everybody ought to be treated in this same way. So that's where we're at. And so what we're going to do this morning is take apart verse 18. And what Paul is going to do in this section is to lay out the principle of pursuing peace with everyone. This idea of pursuing peace with everyone. We're going to see the principle of this reality. And then we're going to see that it is possible to do it. We're going to see the paths of peace, like how that happens. And then last but not least, we'll see the route for true peace. So that's the structure and where we're going. All right, so join me. Look at, verse, uh, look at point one, the principle of peace, <clears throat> the principle of peace. Now, peace, this idea, is all over the New Testament, isn't it? We see this word often in the New Testament used by various different authors, right? And simply put, if we want to define it, it's just a state of well-being. It's a state of well-being. Uh, right now, you know, there's conflict in Ukraine. Russia has attacked Ukraine. Well, there's conflict, right? And peace would be the end of that conflict, in a sense, that's true. What's true of nations is also true of us. It's an end of conflict. It's the cessation of conflict. But it's more than that, actually, in the New Testament. It's not just that there isn't conflict. It's that there's a sense of well-being in the relationship. There's a sense of relational settledness between two people. In Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus said, "'Blessed are the peacemakers.'" Blessed are those who make peace. And then he said, for they shall be called the children of God, the sons of God. And so what, what Jesus is saying there is that making peace, being one who creates relational settledness between people, not only yourself but also others, is Godlike. God moves toward peace. God is seeking peace and pursuing peace. Of course, we see this, don't we? Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. What is Romans 5, 1? We have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating about that phrase is not that we have peace with God because of something we've done, right? We have peace with God, why? Through Christ. Our peace with God is the result of God working toward us. He's moving toward us to offer us peace. God is the one who has made peace 
with us on his own. He came all the way to us, and he has done it by taking the conflict that we had created in our sin onto himself and absorbing that conflict for us. And so God is the source of all true peace. And those who seek peace, James says, are called wise. James 3.16, if you're pursuing peace, if you're seeking peace with other people, you're called wise. To contain, to hold conflict or to hold a state of relational brokenness in your heart is foolish, James says. It's wise to pursue peace with others. And so this is the biblical principle for peace. Peace is God-like. We have peace with Him, and so our hearts in Christ should be pursuing peace with other people. We ought to be pursuing that with others, a state of relational settledness. And of course, that makes sense now when we come to Romans 12, 18, right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Pursue peace with everyone. That's the principle. That's the command that Paul is making. So, what does it mean to pursue peace? <laughs> what do peacemakers do? People that are going to pursue that with other people, that sense of relational settledness, what does that look like, right? What does it look like to pursue peace with other people? And this is point two, the paths of peace, the paths of peace, okay? There's certain ways of looking at the world and at other people that tend toward peace with them. Certain things help us to move toward that with other people. And there are certain things that keep us from making peace with other people as well. And so we want to take these apart. And I want to look at four things that I think move us toward peace with other people. It puts us into a place of relational settledness. The first one is under point A, confession. Confession. The first way that we can pursue peace with people is through confession of our sins and our failings. Our confession of our sins. That word in Greek, confession, is homologeo. It's a combined, it's a compound word that means to say the same as, to say the same as somebody else. What is confession? Confession is saying the same as what another person would say about you. When they say, you sinned against me, you would say, yes, I agree. I would say the same thing. I sinned against you. That's what confession to God is. It's going to God and saying, God, you have said this is sin, and I confess. I say the same as you. I have sinned against you, and I've fallen short of your glory. Confession is the expression of our failure. You realize you've sinned, and in humility, you confess that sin to God and to the person that you don't have peace with. So confession is the first step toward pursuing peace. Now, here's the question. Why does confession produce peace? Why does that produce peace? Well, I think it's obvious, right? If you've sinned against somebody else, you've violated that person, you've hurt them, the first step toward restoring that relationship is to confess that you've done that, to say, you know what? I sinned against you. I failed you. What I did was wrong. I've hurt you, Right? So confession is the acknowledgement that you have hurt another person, to say what they would say about the situation between you. But then what is the opposite of confession? What's the opposite of confession? What would keep us from making peace in this way? The answer, I think, is just self-righteous pride, isn't it? The thing that keeps us from genuinely confessing what's in our hearts, the sin that we've committed, is pride in our hearts that clings to some form of self-righteousness. We, we don't want to say the same thing that the other person says. We want to hold on to our goodness or our righteousness. We want to cling to our lack of failure and say, no, no, it's not me, it's you, right? We want to put it on the other person. That keeps us from confessing because we think we're better than they are. And there are lots of ways that this, lots of forms that this can take, right? 
We fail to make peace when we confess halfway. What's a halfway confession? A halfway confession is acknowledging something, but not completely, right? Yes, I, I did get angry, but I wasn't that angry. Oh, I, I didn't scream and yell. I, I just raised my voice. That wasn't true anger, right? Or I, I, I did sin, but I wasn't completely serious in my sin. It wasn't really what I meant, right? That's a, that's a halfway confession. That's not true confession. That's actually just self-justification, isn't it? There's a second way we can sort of fake confession. We can fake confession with excuses. We see this all over the scriptures, but you remember, you remember Adam's confession in the Garden of Eden, right? God comes to him and says, you sinned. And what does Adam say? Well, it wasn't me, it was her, right? Now he's acknowledging that he did the wrong thing, but he says, it's this woman you gave me, right? Everything was good, but it was just me and the lions, And now I have this wife, and now I'm stuck, right? She made me sin. And we can do this, can't we? We can confess with excuses. What does this look like? It's the word, but. (laughs) I know I sinned in anger, but so did you. I know I sinned when I yelled at you, but you deserved it. That's not actually confession in any way, is it? I'm not actually confessing my sin. What am I actually doing? I'm justifying my sin. Anytime I add anything to the end of, I know I sinned in this way, what I'm actually doing is justifying that unrighteousness to the person I'm standing in front of. I had the right to sin in this way because of you. You caused me to sin. Just exactly like Adam pointed at Eve in the Garden of Eden, we do that with people constantly when we refuse to truly confess our sin. All that is is humble finger pointing. (laughs) I have the right to sin because of you. And so these are False confessions, the opposite of confession. But confession produces peace, doesn't it? When you honestly admit, when you say the same as another person about how you've sinned against them, it produces peace. It starts the process of peace anyway. There's a second one. This is point B on your outline if you're taking notes. Confrontation. Confrontation. You say, wait a minute, confrontation can't produce peace, right? (laughs) If I confront someone, I'm not producing peace. It's actually conflict that I'm bringing to the table. But the reality is that biblical loving confrontation does produce peace. It truly does produce peace. And why? When we don't confront others in their sin honestly, what happens? Well, one of two things can happen. One is that they just continue to sin. And the other is that our hearts begin to grow more and more and more bitter toward them. We can feel this in our hearts, can't we? You have someone who sins and you don't want to talk to them about it and you just watch them do the same thing over and over and over and it's always painful to you, but you just let it build up in bitterness in your heart because you don't, you don't want to really talk to them about it and address it. And so you fake peace, right? We become peace fakers, not peacemakers, and we just sort of ignore it and we just sort of fake it until we make it and we hope that everything will be okay. We never confront that person. And what happens eventually is that those situations explode, don't they? This is what we call, this is what psychologists call passive-aggressive. You take it and take it and take it and then you lose it. And what actually happened there was not the other person's fault. What actually happened was that you failed to biblically confront the person in a righteous and loving way and you just let all of that bitterness build up in your heart so that then you exploded all over them. Passive-aggressive is just an unbiblical term that allows us to make excuses for our lack of love for the other person. Now, obviously, when we talk about confrontation, it needs to be loving biblical confrontation about sin. 
Loving biblical confrontation over sin produces peace. Now, both those words, loving and biblical, are important. Those are important modifiers here, right? We can confront in a very unloving way and in very confusing ways when we don't use loving biblical confrontation. And so I want to take those apart one at a time. The first is loving. True confrontation is done from a position of love and forgiveness. To truly confront a person rightly, you have to forgive them before you do it. This is what's so difficult, right? This is so difficult. And we'll talk about this in forgiveness in just a moment. But if you're bitter in your heart toward a person and you go to confront them, what's the problem with that? You're not walking in the Spirit, are you? You have anger in your heart. You're bitter and angry toward that person. And then you come with a confrontation to to try to help them out of a situation. You're not seeking their good at all. You want your pound of flesh because you're still bitter and angry at them. And so true confrontation has to start from a position of love. You have to love the person and then go to them to address the sin with their good in mind. To see them change, to see them grow for their sakes. You don't need anything more because you've already forgiven them completely for the sin that they've committed. It's finished in your heart. You just want to help them out of the sin that they've found themselves in. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, right? If anyone stumbles, someone who is spiritual ought to come and help them. What does it mean to be spiritual? It means to have already forgiven them, to be walking in the Spirit, to have the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness in your confrontation. And so true confrontation, right confrontation must be loving. It must be loving. If you haven't in your heart truly forgiven a person for something, do not confront them over it. It will only produce conflict. You are not walking in the spirit. You're walking in the flesh. So don't confront over that. Instead, deal with your heart before God, right? Go to Matthew chapter 18 and deal with your heart before God and the forgiveness that he's offered to you and then offer that forgiveness to them in your heart and then pursue them biblically. And the second modifier there in loving biblical confrontation is the word biblical. Biblical, this is important. Confrontation should be related to biblical things. Biblical things. Confronting a person about a feeling that you have about how they're acting is not righteous confrontation. It's not righteous confrontation because there's no chapter and verse to it. You're actually presuming on their motive about why they're doing something. It's just a thing that you felt. But that's not true confrontation. That's just my presumption on what someone else is doing. I, I ought not to confront over what I presume. In fact, just the opposite. I need to repent for my presumptuous heart and seek to love that person and hold them up in a place until I see what's truly going on. And the second, it would be to confront over something that's a conscience issue. You go to someone and you say, you know, you shouldn't be watching those movies. Well, maybe, but maybe that's your conscience, and maybe their conscience is different than yours. Now, obviously, there's categories there where there are sins, of course. But when you take something that is not specifically addressed in Scripture and which is not beyond the scope of what is a normal thing and you take your conscience and place it on someone else and you confront another person for the issue that your conscience holds, what are you actually doing? You're actually holding them not to the Bible's standard or God's standard. Romans 14 says you're judging your brother and it's unrighteous. And so true confrontation must be biblical. It deals with specific failings in keeping God's law what the Bible specifically says. And I would encourage you, if if you're gonna confront somebody, have a chapter and a verse to go to and say, this is the place where I feel like you've failed in this area. This is where I feel like you're failing. 
And let me show you this from the text so that you can truly repent for it. And so true confrontation, true biblical loving confrontation is actually a path for peace. We have to be honest with each other. We have to be honest with each other. If we don't tell each other the truth, we're just faking it and it's not real, right? And so we must, we must confess and we must confront. And the third point C is forgiveness. I think this one's the most obvious. When we think about how to make peace, forgiveness is the most obvious. And we've talked a lot about forgiveness in Romans chapter 12 as we've gone through these Christian distinctives. We have to forgive others. But when we think about forgiveness, I think there are three things that we just need to see quickly about this issue. The first is, who are you required to forgive? Who do you have to forgive? Are there categories of people that you don't have to forgive? Well, the Bible seems to, or clearly, I think, teaches us that we are required to forgive everyone who sins against us. You are required to forgive everybody. You say, well, wait a minute. What if that person hasn't asked for forgiveness? What if they haven't repented? What if if they haven't come to me and said, you know, I sinned against you? Do I still have to forgive them? And I would say, yes. I think the Bible absolutely teaches us that. Jesus says that we ought to do what to our enemies? Love them. How can you love someone you don't forgive? If you're holding bitterness in your heart towards someone, you can't possibly love your enemies or do good or pray for those who persecute you. And so the Bible calls us to forgive even people who don't ask for forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, you remember the parable of the unpayable debt. Do you remember this parable? You have this man who goes to the king and he owes the king 10,000 talents. It's the equivalent of like $75 billion. He owes an unpayable debt to the king and the king forgives his debt. He, He sends him away, he forgives his debt. And the man goes out on the street and what does he do? He finds someone else who owes him a lot of money, but about a year's worth of wages. And what does he do with him? He beats him and he puts him in prison until he pays the whole fine. What's happening there? In fact, the parable ends and Jesus says, so you too must forgive from the heart everyone who sins against you. The Bible teaches that we ought to forgive in the same way that God forgives. We ought to forgive completely, even when a person hasn't repented. And so our responsibility is to love everyone. Just think of that for a minute. That That is a really high standard, isn't it? You have to forgive everybody, love everybody, have, them, have everyone in that place in your heart where you are at peace with them, where you've given them forgiveness. So we're required to forgive everyone who sins against us, whether they repent or not. The second thing we have to talk about with forgiveness is this. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? On a quick summary, forgiveness is the release of a rightful debt that is owed. It's a release of a rightful debt that is owed. Just imagine for a moment that I sin against Alyssa in anger. I get angry at her, right? And I sin against her. That's evil. That's wrong. And and justice would demand that I pay some kind of compensation, something, right? I should compensate for what I've done against her. But forgiveness in Alyssa's heart says, I actually will absorb the debt that John owes me. I'll offer him forgiveness, whether he he repents to me or not. I absorb his evil against me, the debt that he rightfully owes me. I take on. I pay his debt in my heart. I won't require the debt from John any longer. That's what forgiveness is, right? That's what God did for us. Our sins 
had incurred wages, hadn't they? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. What we rightfully deserved was spiritual death. We had incurred wages because of our sin. And what does God do to offer us forgiveness? He takes our debt and he places it on Christ. The free gift of God now is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of the wages that I had earned, my death fell on Christ. My eternal death in hell fell on him and he paid the debt for my sin. He absorbed the debt that I rightfully deserved to pay. And now God can forgive us. That's what forgiveness is. It's to absorb the pain and the debt that another person has incurred against you. The third thing about forgiveness is to ask the question, what is the opposite of doing that? The opposite of doing that is harboring that debt. Holding on to that debt to keep it in the ledger, right? This person has read in their ledger against me. Holding on to the debt. It's a refusal to release the debt, to release that person from what they owe you and to restore them to a place of love and affection that they had before the sin. It's a refusal to do that. I remember I was having a conversation with someone. They they don't go to our church and none of you know them, but they were telling me about a situation that had happened to them 30 years before. 30 years previous to this. And they were still as bitter as they were the day that it happened. They held on to that for 30 years. 30 years of holding bitterness in their heart and a refusal to release that debt to that person. Listen, friends, holding a grudge will never produce peace in any relationship. If someone sinned against you, forgive them. Forgive them. You're called to do it biblically and you have the power to do it in Christ. If you hold on to that grudge, you will never have peace with that person. You can fake it, but it's not real. So forgive those who sin against you. And you might say, well, I have forgiven them. I just like to bring this offense up once in a while during arguments. Just to remind them so they won't ever do that again. That's not forgiveness. That's unrighteous, isn't it? That's sin to do that. I remember the man who married Alyssa and I. He said, all of us carry backpacks. All of us are carrying backpacks, and when someone sins against us, we're given a rock. And there's two things you can do with that rock. You can drop it, or you can put it in the backpack. What ends up happening is you've got a whole backpack full of rocks because you've never truly forgiven someone, and then an an, an exchange comes up or an argument starts, and what happens? You reach back in your backpack, and you start throwing rocks. You say, I remember back in the Carter administration, you did this to me. (laughs) And what's happening there? What am I actually doing? I'm condemning the other person for sins that are long past forgiven, that maybe they probably already confessed. That will never produce peace. That will never produce peace. That's sin. God doesn't do that with us, does he? Joe read it for us this morning, Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Praise God for that. Isn't that awesome? You have some sin that you remember doing and you feel guilty when you think back to it. God says, it's done. Jesus paid the price for that sin. It's finished. 
That's true forgiveness, and that is beautiful because we're set free. We don't longer have to do something to manage that with God. We don't have to try to hope that we're in a good standing with him. He has compassion on his children. He doesn't hold our transgressions against us. That is what it is to be a true, a true peacemaker. It is to forgive completely. And so forgiveness is a path to peace, and this is part of what it means to be a true believer. A true Christian pursues this in their heart. Spurgeon said this, he said, to forgive is godlike. To forgive is godlike. Do you find it difficult to forgive those who have wronged you? You may find it difficult to go to heaven. So let me just ask you this, is there anyone who you haven't completely forgiven from your heart? Is there anyone in your life who you haven't completely forgiven from your heart? I would, I would guess that in hearing this message, if there's a yes in your heart and you say, yeah, there is someone who I haven't truly forgiven, the Spirit will put his finger on that. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's good. He won't let us go. He puts his finger on it and he says, you know what? That's the person. Forgive them. And if you haven't done that, I would encourage you, forgive them from your heart. Do it now. You have the power to do it, and we'll talk about that at the end. And so the paths of peace are confession, confrontation, forgiveness. And the last one, point D, is compromise. Compromise. What do we mean by compromise? Well, not compromise over sin issues. This person is sinning, and that's okay. We'll just compromise on that. No, 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 no. It's not, that's not what we're talking about, right? We confront sin. We don't compromise over sin. But compromise, in this case, is being willing to not get your own way. It's being willing to say, I don't need to dig in my heels in this area. I don't have to have what I demand. And this is sort of what we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about not being wise in your own eyes. I, I don't know. I don't have to get my way every time. I'm not like a spoiled, petulant five-year-old who has to have what they want. Right? We can choose to compromise with other people, choose to consider others, as Paul said, more important than ourselves. Philippians 2.3, right? Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Consider others more important than yourself. Go to a place of compromise and peace with them. So when we compromise, we're actually showing this willingness to listen and to hear the opinions of others, a willingness to say, I might not be right on this, or I'm willing to give up my desires in this area for the sake of the other. To let go of our demands for their sake. So these are the four paths of peace. We have confession, confrontation, forgiveness, and compromise. And all of this fits into this command, right? As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. How do we do that? We do it by doing those four things with everybody around us all the time. We're constantly doing that. We have to constantly be doing that because if we're not, we won't be at peace. We can't fulfill this command. But of course, in that verse, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, there's a caveat, isn't there? And this is point three, the possibility of peace. It's so interesting here that Paul gives us this caveat in the beginning of the verse, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. What's he saying? There are times when it is impossible for there to be peace. And this is point A under point three, Paul's caveat. Paul says, as far as it depends on us, we are to be at peace. We're to biblically follow those paths of peace. We're supposed to do those things rightly, constantly, with everybody, Christian or non-Christian, constantly, in order to seek to produce peace with them. 
We must be confessing our sins. We must be lovingly and biblically confronting sin in others. We must be actively practicing forgiveness. And we must be willing to compromise. All those things may be happening in us, and the other person might just not want to make peace with us. They might refuse to do those things. We just can't get over the hurdle because the other person is unwilling to do it. One commentator said this, he said, to live peaceably is descriptive of that state in which a man does not disturb others and is not disturbed by them. That's that's an important sentence. To live peaceably is is descriptive of that state in which a man does not disturb others and is not disturbed by them. In other words, no one's ruining peace in me, right? I'm not hurting other people. He said the first, to not disturb others, is always in our power, but the second is not. You can't always make peace with everyone. People can refuse to make peace with us, and in those cases, we're called to continue to seek to make peace with them consistently, right? There's never a point when we say, all right, that's it. I've tried, I'm done. We can't do that. We're constantly in this state of desiring peace with other people, and if they make any motion toward peace with us, we latch onto that and seek them out even more. Our hearts love our neighbors in such a way that we move toward them in this way. And of course, this caveat also tells us that we need to fight for the cause of Christ, don't we? We need to fight for the cause of Christ. Another commentator said this, he said, we are not to strive to attain the favor of men in such a way that we refuse to incur the hatred of any for the sake of Christ as often as this may be necessary. In other words, what? We need to be willing to take the shame of Christ onto ourselves. Jesus was not at peace with everyone. Even though he was the most perfect man that ever lived, he was not at peace with everyone. Why? Because they refused to be at peace with him. And we are representatives. We're ambassadors of Christ. And there will be times when people will not be at peace with you because you are pursuing Christ. The commentator says, good nature should not degenerate into compliance so that for the sake of preserving peace, we are complacent to men's sins. That's so important. We need to be willing to confront when it's necessary. And so, there are times when peace is impossible. There are times when peace is impossible. And he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But when we have a caveat like this, we always want to be very cautious, don't we? This is point B on your outline. It is a command to be obeyed. It's a command to be obeyed. What can happen in our hearts? It says, if possible, so much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And what do we say very quickly? We can very quickly say, well, you know, I have tried my best. I've tried, and here we are, didn't work out, so no problem. I'm good now, right? I, I can't make peace, and there's nothing I can do, so I'm just going to let it go. They, they walked away. What can I say? There's nothing I can do. It's not my responsibility to make peace now. I've tried. And it can be so easy for us to do this, right? To reach for the ripcord of the caveat too quickly. What would that look like? You can feel this in your heart, I think, right? We can say things like, I've tried to be at peace with them as much as it depends on me, but they're just a jerk. You're not, you're not actually seeking to make peace, are you? Have you forgiven them from your heart? No. Are you truly seeking to pursue them? No, you're not. You may have for a moment, but you stopped that, and then you're not fulfilling this command. You're just faking it. It doesn't work. Or we can say, I've tried to be at peace as much as it depends on me, but they always want their own way, and I refuse to be a doormat. That's not right. That is not making peace with that person. 
Or we can even say this. We can say, I've tried to be at peace as much as it depends on me, but they've never repented, really. That's not okay. That's wrong. That is not pursuing peace with that person. That is me holding on to my grudge and excusing it with Paul's caveat. Paul wrote us this command so that we would obey it. He wrote it here so that we would put everything at stake, give ourselves up completely, be willing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, to rather be wronged. It's better that that would happen to us so that as much as it possibly depends on us, we will do everything necessary to pursue peace with someone else. And so I'll ask you again, is there anyone in your life who you don't have peace with? Is there anyone who you don't have peace with? And this is incredibly personal. You know who it is. You know who it is. I don't know. I can't tell what's in your heart. You all know for yourselves. It's radically personal. And you can't know if I have someone in my heart either. You have to deal with this before God. It's you and God and that person. So let me ask you, is there someone who you don't have peace with? And if there is, pursue peace with them. Make peace with them. Seek them out. Do whatever is necessary in order to pursue peace with that person who you do not have peace with. This is what God is calling us to do. And I, I think as a true Christian, this feels good, doesn't it? It feels beautiful. I want to do that. I want to pursue peace that way. I want to be done with this thing, this bitterness that's risen up in my heart. I want to be finished with it. And the question is, how? How? How do we do this? And this is point four, the root of peace. The root of peace. Ultimately, the great root of peace between people is the peace that we have with God. The peace we have with God is the only way we can be at peace with other people. How does that work? I want to break this down practically. Okay, so look, look with me in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Just look there. You all know these. If you've ever been in a church, you know these. <laughs> these are the fruits of the Spirit, Right? The fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Look what he says, verse 22. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, singular, because these are all one thing that happens when the Spirit's in us. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. The only way to truly have peace is through the Spirit of God. The Spirit has to produce this in us. You can't have peace with people unless the Spirit of God is working inside of you to produce that. We can't do this in our flesh because our flesh is sinful. We want our pound of flesh. We want to hold on to our grudge, don't we? The only way to do this is to do it through the Spirit. And God has given us the Spirit in order to produce peace in us, hasn't he? That's his purpose in giving us the Spirit. Listen to John 14, verses 26 and 27. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Spirit's coming, right? The Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna teach you everything. He's gonna bring to remembrance everything that I taught you. And this is his next verse. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What's the Spirit gonna do? He's gonna provide peace in the heart so that then we can express peace outwardly from our hearts. So how does the Spirit give us peace? How does the Spirit move in us so that we have peace? And the answer is actually in the book of Galatians again. So look at Galatians chapter 4. Just look backwards a little bit. Galatians chapter 4. 
in verse 4. And Paul here is talking about our sonship in Christ. He's described that whether we're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or free, female, there's, that we're all one in Christ. And then in chapter 4, he describes this sonship. And he, in verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We've received our adoption as children of God. Through whom? Through Christ. Jesus died for our sins so that we can now be adopted into the family of God. And look at verse 6. He says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. What is the spirit doing inside of us all the time? Romans 8.16, same exact statement, right? The spirit is constantly testifying with our spirits that we are what? We're children of God. He is telling us constantly, you are my child. I love you. I am for you. I sent my son to die for you. The Spirit is telling us that over and over and over again. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. It means to walk by faith in that truth. What happens when you believe that? What happens when you believe that Jesus died for all of your sins and that you are a child of God, that the creator of the universe is your dad? That's awesome. What happens in your heart? There's no more conflict with anybody. Why? The guy who made the universe is your dad. And everything that's coming into your life is from him. It's not an accident. He loves you and he's caring for you. And he's proven that he loves you through the death of his son. We cannot make peace until we trust that God is our father. And that the pain that that other person has brought into your life is from him. Listen, all your sufferings in your life are from him. And that's hard to say because life is painful. I know I know it's hard, and all of that suffering came from him. It's from him. It's not by accident. All of the relational strain in your life right now is from God. It's from him. He loves you. You're his child, and he's brought it into your life to help you and to serve you. All of the sorrows and pains from your enemies are ultimately from him. The problem is that we don't believe that. We don't believe it. We don't believe that we're children of God. We don't believe that he's sovereign over our lives. We don't believe that he loves us and then we don't believe it and what happens? We don't walk in the spirit and we don't walk in the spirit. What happens? There's no peace. It's conflict and we hold on to bitterness and rage and grudges and we refuse to confront and we just fake it with people and it's all just a mask and it's not true, genuine love for our neighbor. All that has come into your life is from God the Father. There's not one mistake that's ever happened in your life. There's never been a season when God was out of control and he wasn't sure what to do and he was trying to respond and he hit plan B to try to get you out of the circumstance. Everything that's come into your life has been from him and it's come from his loving, kind hand. Because he loves you and he wants to help you. And we have to believe that if we're gonna make peace with others. And the only way we know that God loves us when life is painful, is by believing what the Bible says. Believing that God loves us. And you say, well, if God loved me, why would he allow me to hurt like this? Why would he allow this other person to do this wicked thing against me? Why would he ever allow that to happen? And I don't know for you, but I do know it was for your good. It was for your good. But we know that he loves us. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus. 
You remember Romans 5.1, we started there. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how was that purchased for us? Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Peace with God is guaranteed through Christ's death for us. And that guarantee of peace with God through the death of Christ is the power to walk by the Spirit and then to live in peace with others. It reminds us that God loves us, doesn't it? It reminds us that Jesus is for us and it reminds us that our lives are in his hands. That's what we have to believe. It reminds us of the profound and permanent peace that we have with God. Because why? We are what? We're children of God. No wonder then Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be what? They shall be called the sons of God. Until our hearts believe that reality, we can't make peace with anyone. But the moment that our hearts believe that, guess what happens? All the power to make peace flows out of us and we change and we move toward people. And so this morning we're going to celebrate communion. And what is communion? (laughs) Communion is reminding ourselves again and again, month after month after month, that what? Jesus loves us. He loves us, that he died so that we could be called the children of God, so that we could be adopted into God's family, so that we could be loved by God the Father, so that we could walk in the Spirit for his glory. So communion's only for believers, right? If you're here and you're not a Christian, don't take communion. That's, that's just lying to yourself. If you, if you don't know the love of Christ for you and you've never truly trusted that, don't take communion. Instead, Repent for your sins and trust that Jesus died for sinners like you and believe that good news of the gospel. You need to repent of the sins of selfishness and pride and turn in humility to Christ. But listen, if you are a believer, I want to ask you to do something. Is there anybody you don't have peace with right now? Just think of that. Is there anybody in your life that you don't have peace with right now? I would encourage you, if there is, Don't take communion. Don't take it. Repent of your sin and make peace with that person. And then come back and take communion next month. The reason why I say that is in Matthew 5. Look there with me. Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. Jesus says this. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. (laughs) Leave your offering there before the altar and go. He says, don't do it. Why? Because it's not done in the spirit. It's not true. It's not honest. It's actually false. You're actually faking it at that moment. Don't do it. Leave the offering at the altar, which is an amazing thing to say. You have a line of people making offerings and, and you step out of line and say, no, I can't do this right now. I have to deal with this brother or this person who I've sinned against or who has something against me. Make peace. And then he says what? First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. If there's someone who you haven't made peace with, listen, don't take communion. Contact that person. Make peace with them. And then come and take communion when your heart is free from that. Okay? So what we want to do is uh, invite the men to come forward. And uh, the band will come up and they'll play. And uh, come down and take the elements. 
Uh, we're going to have them with trays. Just come down, take the elements from them, go back to your seat, and then we'll take communion all together. All right? Let me pray and we'll do communion together. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you as those who long to be your children. Lord, we thank you that we are, Lord, that you have adopted us once and for all through the death of Christ. Lord, how amazing is it, Lord, that you took the conflict that we had created by our sin and instead of calling us to an eternal payment of that debt, Lord, instead of that, you took that conflict and you placed it on your son, Lord, the man of peace. Lord, you took our sins and placed them on him so that we would have peace with you. Lord, now we, Lord, we rejoice that you have made us your children, Lord, that we are your sons and daughters, that everything in our lives is coming to us from you and that you are a good and gracious heavenly father and that your goodness is over all your works. Lord, we know this is true even in the most painful of times because of what Christ has done. Lord, we can trust it because of Jesus and his death. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us, help us to believe that truth, and particularly in times of pain, Lord, when relational conflict comes and our hearts are broken and we don't know how to respond, Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith in your goodness over us, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with faith in your fatherly care. Lord, even now, for those who are, maybe are convicted by this, Lord, I pray that they would know the forgiveness they have in Christ, Lord, that they would repent of this sin and that they would love their neighbor from the heart in the same way that we have been loved by you. So Lord, we thank you for Christ. Lord, as we proclaim his death once again, Lord, we proclaim, Lord, not only that he died, but Lord, we proclaim the necessity of his death for our sins. Lord, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. Lord, we needed your son to come for us. And he has come and he has paid it all. So Lord, I pray that our hearts would truly behold him this morning, truly see his love for us. Lord, rejoice in your tender care Lord, that we would be those who do pursue peace with all men. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray.